This week on Myths and Legends, there are three stories from Korean folklore about how you can be helpful. You'll see someone play the most dangerous game of Pictionary ever and learn that the best way to help people might just be shoving them relentlessly down a hill. The creature this time is a sticky dude and the best reason to wear tearaway track pants. This is Myths and Legends, episode 271, A Friend in Need. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Real quickly, today, after the main story, but before Creature of the Week, we have a big announcement. It's this awesome new project we've been working on, so be sure to stick around for that. Today's stories are from Korea, and they are three stories about helping others. You'll see some different ways of helping your neighbor, ranging from giving them cash to pushing them relentlessly down hills. And we'll start with a rich guy who, yeah, he can be helpful, but he doesn't want to. Okay, wow, so I feel awkward, the poet said, grimacing. Young said, no, 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 please, don't. It was not a reflection on the poet or even the beggars. He was just communicating how he felt to a man who appeared pretty wise. The poet thought about it. I I mean, I get what you're saying. You feel like there are a lot of beggars coming to your mansion because you have so much money and they have so little. The poet sipped the tea. Because, say, the Buddhist priests who rely on donations come down from their mountain temples to beg them of you instead of you sending supplies up there to donate. Or the farmers who are at the mercy of the weather coming to you for help with your unearned generational wealth. Or the people from the city, from whose purses corrupt officials wring cash, come to you because you rest easy every day of your life. Am I I summing it up for you? Am I getting close? Young said, yeah. When he said it like that, it sounded kind of bad. The poet might have said that that's because it was, but Young kept talking. Look, he was happy to help. He was. But if you keep pouring water out of a bowl, soon you don't have any water left in the bowl. And if you give all your food to your neighbor, you have none for yourself. Did the poet understand what he was saying? The poet said, yes, those were barely metaphors. He understood. He didn't want to give out everything he had because then he wouldn't have anything. But, well, I I also don't like conflict. Oh, and being mean, Young informed the poet. The poet took a deep breath. Okay, to summarize, Young wanted to be nice, but he also didn't want to keep giving money away to those who needed it, but didn't want them to know that that's what he was doing, and also didn't want them to dislike him for it. The poet said, yeah, he could help Young out with that. Then he took a victory sip of his tea. Young grinned. Wait, really? He was just venting to the poet. He didn't expect the poet to actually be able to help him. Like, he didn't expect a writer to actually have, you know, real-life skills. The poet said that none of this was really casting Young in a good light, but whatever. Sure, he knew of a solution to help Young. Statues. Statues, Young scratched his head. Miryax, yes, the poet said. Big ones. Big granite statues carved in the shape of humans even taller than the white Buddha carved on a cliff not far from Seoul. Not a day's walk from here, there were two big white stones near a cliff. The rich man, Young, 
could have them dragged here and carved into the two statues, a man and wife. And when the two statues were finished, the poet could guarantee that no more beggars would come to the gate. And I won't have to deny them money out of my fortune? Young grew hopeful. You will not. And you can keep being nice to them. They'll never know that you didn't want them here in the first place. Or that you worried about them cleaning you out. Because of your, let's call it kindness, the poet said. A few hours later, the poet left. It's kind of hard to hang out and accept hospitality when the host is constantly complaining about what he calls freeloaders accepting his hospitality. And the rich man thought about the plan and the myriacs. He wasn't convinced. It sounded like a lot of work. Well, contracting it out and finding the right servants sounded like a lot of work. He wasn't going to go to the quarry himself, but still, he put a pin in the idea and continued on with his life. But then, so many people kept showing up. It got so annoying. He kept making more and more money, and more and more people wanted a piece of him. One morning, he said enough was enough and sent out word. He was going to get some statues carved. Months and months later, the poet walked a familiar road. Familiar, but empty. The last time he had been to Yong's house for tea, he had been one of a throng of people on the road, going to see the rich man whose family had cared for this land and its people for generations. Now, he heard the birds chirping, the stream bubbling, and the rustle of deer in the leaves far off. He saw them standing above the trees, the myriacs large granite statues. So, Young had followed his advice. He approached the empty gate and found a man sweeping the grounds, the lone servant in a house that used to be teeming. The poet asked about the master. The man pointed a finger to the main house. The poet looked around. Wow, this place had seen better days. It was dirty and grimy, falling into disrepair already. The poet found Young pacing by the lake behind the house. The poet smiled and raised his arm to wave, but the anxiety on Yong's face morphed into rage when he saw the poet. You. He pointed at the poet, telling the man he hoped the poet would return so he could get what's coming to him. The poet did not run. Yong grabbed his gray topknot and shook him, asking how dare the poet return after giving the advice he did. The statues, their transportation, carving and care, it had ruined Yong. He had nothing now, and it was all because of the poet. The elderly poet merely smiled. Young stopped shaking him. The poet stepped back and redid his hair. As he did so, he posed a question to Young. What was the magic Young wanted from him? The goal of the poet's advice. Young said he asked for a way to keep the beggars away. The poet pointed back to the gate past the lone servant Yong could afford to keep in his employ. And there were no beggars at Yong's gate. Yong said no. No, there weren't. They knew that there was nothing for them now, here at the estate, that Yong had brought his line to ruin with the statues. The poet shrugged. So there, the man shouldn't gripe about it. The poet helped Yong achieve his desired end. No more people asking anything of him. They wouldn't come to a place where there is nothing to be given away. Young's snarl turned to a smile and then a chuckle. 
then a laugh. He sighed. Well, he should thank the poet then. The man was truly wise. And now, on the other side of it, it would have been better for Young to go broke, giving his money away to the hungry and the needy, than to stone people so Young could be mean without being mean. He invited the poet in again, for tea, this time as a friend, and the poet accepted. But the poet wasn't exactly right. You can give without having anything to give. That's not a great idea. And we'll go to the city to see a man who has learned that lesson. Wu, the spoonmaker, was a good guy. He was a good husband and a father. He took care of his home and his children, and there were always rice and kimchi in the jars of his home. Then his kids grew up, and Wu? Wu suddenly had more than he needed. He had always run his spoon-making business well, and everyone knew of his quality. And, I, yeah, I mean, I guess everyone needs spoons. Regardless, he tossed a few coins here and there, and accepted people into his shop, giving cash to some, rice to others, and so on. He knew how the city was hurting under its corrupt officials, magistrates who squeezed the people and lived large off their tax money. Like Bruce Wayne, he was going to do something about it. His method was donating money and generally being charitable and not beating people half to death in the street. Wu wasn't Bruce Wayne, though, in that he wasn't rich. And one version says that, quote, if you put enough raindrops together, you have a river. And that river of cash flowed directly out of Wu's accounts. Still, he liked the feeling. He liked helping. Someone had to. He still had a roof over his head and a way to make his spoons. Some people didn't even have that sort of luxury. He would be fine. Except he wouldn't. Wu eventually found himself among the number of people he wanted to help. He couldn't afford the brass to make spoons or even the meager meals to keep he and his wife fed. So he did what most in the city did and went to the lenders. He just needed a little bit to get back on his feet, to buy some metal for his spoons. Then things would be good again. He underestimated just how vigorously the lenders would want to return on their investment. And though his spoons sold well, they didn't even cover the interest. He needed to borrow more to pay the original interest and then found himself in a spiral. Three or four lenders down the line and a few months past due, and rough hands grabbed him on the way to work and dragged him before the judge. The judge reviewed the case. It was obvious that Wu didn't have the money. He dismissed it with a knowing nod towards the men and told the lenders that they should count it as a loss and move on. The lenders' goons, well, they escorted Wu out of the courtroom. Wu limped home, bleeding, with his right eye swollen so much that he could only see out of his left. The loan sharks had told him that while there might not be any legal recourse for getting their money back, there were other ways, and he had a week. Wu didn't know what he was going to do. He prayed silently for help. He was desperate. He crossed the gate of his house when something jangled at his feet. He looked down and, huh, down there on the ground was a string of cash coins. So real quickly, at this time in Korea and elsewhere throughout Asia, they would string together coins by the tens or hundreds through a hole in the middle of the coin, and the string itself would be a unit of value. Anyway, in the dust path leading up to his house, Wu found a string of seven coins. 
seven. It wasn't much, but it would be enough for he and his wife to be able to eat a bit of rice that night. He picked five coins off the string, handed them to his visiting son, waved off questions about why his face looked like that, and told his son to go buy some rice for the family. After the son returned and the couple cooked the rice, the three sat down to eat when the son looked at the string. Oh, he thought his dad said that there were only seven coins on the string. Wu nodded, that's, yeah, that's right. The son pointed, he must have miscounted. There were 12 because there were still seven coins, even after the five he spent. Wu looked down. Wow, yeah, I mean, today had contained a fair bit more head trauma than usual, so that could be the case. He shrugged. Then he thought about it. No, he really remembered counting seven. He reached down and pulled two from the string and counted again. Seven. He put the two back on the string. Seven. No matter how many he pulled off or put on, there were always seven on the string. Wu marveled, but knew he had to keep the secret. If he paid off all of his debts at once, people would get suspicious. The loan sharks might come for him and discover the magic cash string. And if there was anyone who didn't deserve to have it, it was them. If he was able to keep this a secret, he would be able to live as well as help out his city. So he paid off his loans just enough to not get beaten or dragged before the judge and ostensibly lived by his well-crafted brass spoons. At night, though, he became something of a charity vigilante, tossing coins over gates under the cover of darkness, dropping money into beggars' hands, and then disappearing before they looked up. He made pilgrimages to nearby temples in the mountains, secretly putting large sums in all the donation boxes without anyone seeing. Everyone prospered, but no one knew why. We'll see the magic behind the money string and who delivered it, but that will be right after this. One magistrate called the other into his office. Have a seat. The younger man did. Uh, okay, what, what's up? The magistrate said, well, as he knew, they all like to steal from the money that the people gave for taxes. The younger magistrate smiled. Of course, the all-pervasive corruption was a big part of why he liked working here. The older magistrate nodded. Very true. It's just, there have been some complaints. Not from the justice system or the people, they can't do anything but from the other corrupt officials. They were complaining that someone wasn't taking their unfair share of the people's cash. The younger magistrate gasped. What, and they thought it was him? The older said no, they didn't know who it was, but it threatened to bring this whole operation down and he stopped. I'm sorry, is a corruption investigation boring to you? He said to the younger one. Why are you looking out the window? The younger didn't respond, but just pointed behind the magistrate who called the meeting. There, along the top part of the window, was a group of coins just dancing along. A whole conga line in groups of five to seven coins bopping along the outside of the window. Both men rose and ran. Outside, they looked up. There, in the sky, was a string of coins. You had to really be looking for it. But if you looked, you could see them flowing from the opening in the wall of the treasury to... somewhere? The men walked underneath the shadows, looked up, seeing where they were going, until they found the destination. 
Spoonmaker Wu's house. They were going to get the judge. They wouldn't stand for a thief of the people's money. That wasn't them. Hey, honey, thanks for making dinner, Wu said when he returned from his evening charity patrol. His wife looked out from the other room. Oh, she thought he was surprising her with dinner. Their son had gone back home earlier in the week. Who, then, was making dinner? They both looked, and at the stove was a goblin. Uh, uh, oh, Togabi, the creature corrected. This wasn't Europe, but Goblin had some cultural baggage that the Togabi didn't care to have carry over. But yeah, hi. Wu bowed low before the creature, pleading with it to please, please leave them. Wu turned to his wife. Togabi are notoriously fickle friends. They keep an evil menagerie that includes a tiger, wild boar, leopard, serpent, toad, and cat. Above all, they like to have fun and will resort to ruthless pranks if they grow bored at all. And... They also help people out when they need it, like kitchen maids, children, and others who might need aid in an unforgiving world. Wu's wife stopped him. Yeah, she understood what a togabi was. He didn't need to woo-splain it to her. She stepped forward. She could assume that he was responsible for the cash string. The togabi smiled. She was correct. She didn't want to be rude, but she had to ask. While they were happy to meet him and express their thanks in person, or evil creature, why were they getting that opportunity tonight? The togabi finished up the meal, smelled the soup, and said, Oh, well, first, thank you so much for being polite. Second, they got to meet him because he was here to tell them to run for their lives. The couple blinked. Wait, what? The togabi nodded. Yeah, yeah, he probably should have gotten right to it. The men were already on their way. But it was more thrilling this way. A woo's secret, the cash string, had been discovered and men were coming to, at the very least, beat him up and take it. That's best case scenario, though. Wu started waving his hands, running back and forth, trying to decide what to take, when his wife turned to the togabi. What should they do? The togabi pointed to her. Give the string to her, and she needed to leave immediately. She could make it to a monastery, high in the mountains in a different province, but only if Wu covered her escape. The wife kissed Wu and went to gather up her things. But Wu stayed with the togabi. He said, he was charity Batman, not regular Batman. How could he cover her escape against whoever was coming? As Wu's wife left the house, the togabi said that Wu would be just fine. How was Wu at Pictionary? Is it a badger? It's a badger. Oh, yeah, it's a badger. I said badger. Why are you still drawing? One magistrate, one met, the older magistrate said, pointing at the drawing. Oh, my gosh, it's not a badger. The other magistrate chimed in. Also, what is this, like a 20-year-old episode of Family Guy? Uh, no, that was a jackal, and jackals aren't native to Korea, so maybe do your research, the older magistrate said before the judge told them both to shut up. This wasn't actually Pictionary. The spoon maker, Wu, was telling them how he did the magic to pull the money from the treasury before they beat him to death and took the magic themselves. Wu had met them at the door, asking them to come in, and he listened patiently to their charges. 
he said that he would cooperate completely. But he needed a large sheet of paper pasted on a screen, a rabbit hair pen, and some ink. They were able to go get all those for him. But it took a little time, and that was the point. Wu wanted to burn as much time as possible. He waited with the two guards they brought. Men Wu recognized from the last time he was dragged before a judge. Yeah, we don't have any particular loyalty to the loan sharks or the judge. We just like beating up guys, so here we are. Ah, to be doing what you love. The two men were inspecting their weapons. Weapons they were excited to use on Wu. Wu, the spoon maker, offered them some of the dinner that was on the stove, and they thanked him. They had to keep up their strength for beating him after he revealed his secret. Wu chuckled. <laughs> Glad to help. The two magistrates and their boss, the judge, returned with the ink, pen, and sheet of paper, and Wu got to work. Slowly, after some ill-advised guesses in what wasn't actually a game, the image began to take focus. Wu milked it for as long as he could, giving his wife ample time to get on the road, but soon he couldn't help but finish the drawing. Oh, it's a donkey, the younger magistrate said. The older swore, ah, why did he put all of his eggs in the badger basket? Oh, but there's something different about it. It didn't have a long donkey face, but a human one. Which human face? The younger magistrate said. Wu took a deep breath, hoping that the togabi would make good on his promise. And Wu finished the drawing, putting the last few lines on the face. The two magistrates snorted in laughter. Oh, wow, yeah, that was good. And they looked back to their boss, whose eyes were meeting his own. In the picture, the drawing was of his own face on the donkey. Wu had... Uh, essentially, drawn him as a jack, well, you get the idea. He stood. Was this Wu's idea of a joke? Wu said, not his idea exactly. The judge said that he had put up with this nonsense for too long. If Wu was going to be so bold, they would just have to beat the answer out of him. He yelled for the guards, but no one came. He had no way of knowing, but the Togabi's dinner that they had eaten had been laced with a powerful diuretic. So they were off scene to other business. The judge strode forward with his walking stick, telling the magistrates to get a hold of Wu. He would get the answers himself. They didn't, though. They were still laughing at the picture, the likeness of the judge, how it looked so real that it moved. Wait, what? As the judge stepped forward to strike Wu, the drawing, which had been specified by the Togabi, did move. It leapt out a fully formed donkey with the face of the judge and kicked the judge in the chest, sending him sprawling back. It half spoke, half brayed a, come with me if you want to live, and Wu, seeing his chance, leapt atop the donkey's back. In a few bounds, the creature was out the window. With the guards still occupied, the judge struggling to catch his breath, and the two magistrates laughing, no one chased Wu as the donkey with the face of a man fled the city and climbed into the mountains. They never saw Wu again, and rumor has it that he and his wife lived a long and happy remainder of their lives in the temple in the mountains. People came from all around to receive alms, and Wu was happy to give them. They knew which monastery it was because, on the cliff face leading up to the temple, there was the unmistakable painting of a donkey with a human face. I 
like this story for a few different reasons. Wu was unapologetically himself and kept helping people even when it hurt, like literally when he was getting beaten up by loan sharks. But also, the Togabi, the mischievous, goblin-like creature, was actually a pretty good little guy. He earnestly wanted to help out the people in his own way. And while you get some of that throughout mythology, I mean, you could argue that the trickster in general represents people fighting against authority using their wits, it was nice to have a trickster using his powers explicitly for good. The next story is why failure, and I guess throwing yourself down hills, can be good. But that will be right after this. elderly man picked himself up off the ground. No, no, he was dying. The child, walking on the road behind him, rushed over. Oh no, was he hurt? The boy saw him stumble on the hill. The elderly man picked himself up. No, he wasn't hurt, but he was dying. The boy asked if he was sick then? The elderly man shook his head. No, not that. The boy didn't know? Really? They were on Three Years Hill. He had spent his entire life fearing stumbling on this hill because if you stumbled and fell in the slightest, you would live for three years. He had failed. He had so much hope for the time he had left, but now it was limited. The boy said, wow, that's heavy. He helped the man to his feet, waited until he was steady, and then gave him a sharp shove. The man toppled and fell. The old man wailed. What was the boy doing? The boy didn't answer, but waited for the elderly man to rise again. The man refused his help this time, but it didn't matter. The boy shoved the man a third time. The man could barely get up on his feet and flee from the hill before the boy shoved him again and again. He was pleading with the young man to stop. Why was he doing this? It wasn't until they were at the foot of Three Years Hill, on flat ground, that the boy stopped relentlessly shoving the elderly man. The man, slightly bruised but not seriously injured, asked why. Why had the young man done that? But the boy didn't answer that question. He asked how many times the old man had fallen on Three Years Hill. The elderly man shrugged. He didn't know. Eight? Nine times? No thanks to the boy. Wow. Then you get 27 more years. You're welcome, the boy winked. The elderly man was perplexed. What was the boy talking about? The boy said three years for falling? Three times nine was 27. The elderly man got 27 years. And if he kept falling, he would keep getting more years. At that moment, the elderly man realized something. He had spent his entire life fearing that hill. Fearing failure. But he realized that the hill was more than that. You can only learn, only live by failing every now and then. Maybe not nine times in a row, that was a little rough. But if you live your life cautiously stepping around every opportunity, fearing tripping yourself up even a little bit, you're not actually living. You're avoiding living in the name of being safe. The elderly man thanked the boy for the rather aggressive lesson, and the pair ran back, together, to Three Years Hill. After that day, the elderly man didn't fear failure, or the hill, again.
it stuck with me. I personally fear failure, and I think that's kind of normal. But if you live your life being so cautious and so careful, so afraid to make a mistake that you never actually, you know, live, that's a problem too. I found this particular interpretation online and fell in love with the story because of it. Next week, we catch up with a guy who probably should have made fewer mistakes, or rather, fewer lethal ones. The trap finally closes on Robin Hood, and we see the famed outlaw face the consequences of a lifetime of defiance. And we'll see if he can come out the other side alive. Hey, everyone. For years, we've brought you stories from around the world. And we're still going to. Myths and Legends isn't going anywhere. Yes, but also, for the first time, we're bringing you these incredible tales in Spanish. It's the humor, the journeys, and the relatability you love. And yet, estas historias todavía te sorprenderán. We can't wait for you to hear this new show. Sonoro y Next Both presentan Mitos y Leyendas, available wherever you listen to podcasts. The creature this time is the Glashton from Manx folklore. So, there are seahorses and there are seahorses. One are the fun little guys who hook onto plants and sway in the currents. Others are sticky mythological horses that live in water and want to drown and eat you, hopefully in that order. The concept of a water horse isn't a new one on this podcast, but apparently it was a huge deal on the Isle of Man, the place this creature calls home people would catch wind of the Glashton and rush out to see it only to realize that it's just a normal, non-sticky horse or a guy with just bigger-than-average ears. The real Glashton was way too sneaky to be caught by a crowd, though it had no problem catching a crowd. You might see livestock coming out of the ocean and think, hey, free horse. If you're a figure in Greek mythology, you might have other thoughts, but we won't go into those a team of people might see the horse come out of the water and attach a plow to it. The horse would work for a couple of hours and then break for lunch, in that it would make a break for the water and eat the team of workers for lunch. The plow would stick to the horse, but then the guys would stick to the plow and the horse would drag them all down to the ocean, consuming them. The Glashton doesn't just prey on people by taking advantage of their desire for free labor. It seeks out the lonely people of the mountains because it can transform into a human, I added a link to the picture in the show notes, but the depictions range from a really buff guy with a horse head, like if a bodybuilder put on one of those weird horse masks that are popular on the internet for some reason, to just a normal guy with horse ears. Like many creatures, it gives human beings a fighting chance by not being able to transform its whole body. Unfortunately, this creature can just wear a hat and you'll be none the wiser. That's what happened with one family when a little old lady showed up at their door begging for a place to sleep that night. The family was happy to help and put her in the same bed that the family's five daughters shared. She didn't take off the hat until it was dark, and the daughter on the far edge of the bed, after hearing the struggling and the silence of an elderly horse lady exsanguinating four of her sisters, took off in a run, diving out the window. The only thing that saved her was crossing a burn, a flowing brook, something that most mythological monsters can't cross. The story puts it forth like it's a happy ending, but she still lost four sisters and the killer remained at large, so yeah, I guess fun thing for her to live with. A famous story was one where a young woman was expecting her father, who was traveling through the rainstorm, late at night. So she opened the door when she heard pounding. She told the shadowy male figure to come inside and might have been intrigued when she saw that it was a young man who clearly worked out, but froze when he removed his hat. 
revealing his horse ears. He was a Gloucester. He got right to the point. He said she was coming with him and grabbed the hem of her dress. It's sticking to him like everything else did. She screamed, and that roused the rooster in the barn, who freaked out that he was late for work and crowed. The Gloucester, too, panicked when he thought it was nearly dawn and had to get back home, and pulled at the young woman's dress. She thought quickly, grabbed a knife, and cut the hem away as the Gloucester rushed from the home. From that day forward, she was very careful about who she invited in. A couple lessons from this. One, definitely be careful who you invite inside. Maybe have them take off their hat first. Live by a flowing stream if you can. Maybe a sewer is good enough or a gutter. I don't know. And say what you want about athleisure. But wearing tearaway track pants might just save your life. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music we used in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>